The mic was turned off. Is that better? Yes. Much better. Uh, so anyway, <clears throat> I'm going to use this time to uh, cover kind of uh, an overview, a review of where we have been in my half of the year, what I cover uh, in Sunday school, at which I will begin, Lord willing, in January. I've told Dr. Hand that he may have however many weeks he needs to make up for uh, what he's going to miss because of his voice. And um, so, but we'll get going back in the message of Leviticus. As you recall, those of you who have been in here for our study last year, beginning in January and going to the end of May, uh, was <clears throat> an overall view of the biblical theology of the book of Leviticus. That's a mouthful. Basically, it's my goal here to communicate what Moses is trying to communicate uh, to believers in our age through the book of Leviticus. So, so far, we've covered in our study of the Pentateuch, we have covered Genesis, Exodus, and up through verse or chapter 11 in Leviticus. And so let's, let's just review some of what we've covered. Uh, as I look around, some of you are new to the class. You weren't here for the uh, first part of our study in six months last year. Uh, so here we are. We're, let's do some review. First of all, the main theme of the book. My goal here is to make it so that when I'm done with the Pentateuch, if the Lord gives me enough years, uh, I'm, we're, we're going to cover Numbers next and then Deuteronomy. So it's going to still take a while to get through the Pentateuch, but hopefully you should be able to enunciate uh, what the theme of each book of the, of the first five books of Moses entails. In other words, be able to file away in your mind exactly what God is communicating through his word in the first five books of the Bible. The I would argue that the first five books of the Bible are completely foundational for the whole rest of the scripture. Okay, let me say that again. Well, you say, I got it the first time. All right, well, let's just make sure you do. The first five books of the Bible are completely foundational for the rest of Scripture. If we miss the messages of those five books, then we are left with, well, okay, what do I build the rest of the Bible, my understanding of the rest of Scripture on? And the answer is, you need to go back and lay a good foundation, which the Lord did for us when he gave us the Pentateuch. All right, the main theme, holiness is essential for being in God's presence. Now, as we approach the book of Leviticus, we may have the experience uh, that we've all encountered when we have in our Bible reading schedule, we read Genesis we read Exodus, and then we come to Leviticus, and we say, wow, 
what am I going to do with this book? I start reading through, and it's one complicated thing after the other. This kind of sacrifice, that kind of sacrifice, how in the world do I put it all together in my mind? Well, that's what we're here for. We're going to uh, continue our study, and we're going to ask ourselves the question, all right, well, uh, let's take a look at this as not a, what would you say, a legalistic way that God, God's people earned their salvation in the Old Testament. That's a horrendous view of the book of Leviticus. The correct view, as I'm going to argue, is that being in God's presence is an incredible miracle for any person, whether an Old Testament believer or a New Testament believer. And what we're going to see in Leviticus is that to be in God's presence means that we have to deal with our sin. And there's only one way that we're ever going to do that, to be in God's presence. And that is if there is death of a sacrificial animal and the shedding of its blood and the the manipulation of its blood in such a way that God's wrath towards sin is propitiated. It finds its appropriate pouring out of the wrath of God on sin, and then he is satisfied with that God-ordained means of how to deal with sin. And it's only when our sin is dealt with that we have the privilege of being in God's presence. And, of course, for the New Testament believer, that presence is magnified by the fact that we don't have to worship at a tabernacle or at a temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When Paul tells us that in the New Testament, he uses a word, a Greek word for the, for the temple. He says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a Greek word that means the very holy of holies, not the temple complex, but the holiest place. That's what we are. Now God's presence is inside us. It is a whole nother level of intimacy and security. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit till the day of redemption. We don't have to go someplace to worship him. We worship him whenever we are, wherever we are, whenever we will. And what an amazing, what an amazing continuity, yet discontinuity, between what the Old Testament provides for the believer and what the New Testament believer enjoys in terms of intimacy with our great God, all on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If we ever ever stray far in our thinking from what Christ accomplished on Calvary's cross, then we will be diminished 
in our walk with him to an immeasurable level. Therefore, we have to draw these things to mind continuously. That's the purpose of the book of Leviticus. And holiness comes only through one way, the death of a God-approved sacrifice, the death that's going to deal with our sin. And it doesn't matter how long we've lived the Christian life. Every single day, we have to live in the awareness of what Christ has done for us. It's not some sort of, the book of Leviticus is not some source of, oh, look at those poor people, look at those Israelites, look how meticulous they had to be in all their sacrificial system. Sure glad, sure glad I don't have to be meticulous anymore. Oh, no, no, no. We've got to be even more meticulous in our, world, in our walk with the Lord due to the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And we need to remind ourselves continuously, what is the basis for us enjoying the presence of our God? All right, let's see. This is not advancing. Uh, uh, let's see here. Ben, it looks like maybe, uh, oh, is, it, she's there. Okay. Sorry. There we go. All right, point one that we looked at in chapters one through seven is that God can dwell with mankind only through holy sacrifice. What is holiness? Well, when we're talking about God's holiness, it is the uh, complete, infinite perfection of his perfect character. No one in the universe matches the character of our great God. That's an amazing, an amazing rep, uh, realization that the scripture communicates to us over and over again. The fact that we can be holy means that we can be dedicated completely to his service. We can be growing as small as our steps are. We can be growing in Christ-likeness. And what an amazing thing that is. All right, so let's take a look just briefly at the sacrifices we looked at last year. First of all, the ascension or burnt offering. The word means what goes up, the implication, in smoke. The ascension offering or burnt offering was consumed entirely on the altar. It pictures the utter consecration of all of life by the believer and his trust in the forgiveness of sin through the burnt offering. Next, the peace offering. This was not the consumption of the entire animal. This involved the fat of the animal. In the ancient world, uh, the choicest part of an animal was the fat. I don't know about you, but when I go out, say, to a barbecue restaurant, I might get brisket. And uh, I, even though I order 
uh, lean brisket that's still got a certain amount of fat. What do I do? I trim it off <laughs> and I eat just the lean part. Because I don't know, I don't care to eat all that fat. But that would have not been something that would have been done in the ancient world. No, no, no. The fat was the best part of the, of the meal. And only kings were supposed to eat the fat. It was a, if you wanted to impress the king, you gave him meat with lots of fat on it. And that's what the Lord desires in the, in the uh, peace offering. As well, the concept of peace or shalom has the idea of complete harmony between the offerer and the God the offerer worships. And so at the end of the peace offering, there would be a fellowship meal. The priests representing uh, God himself would sit down with the offerer and they would enjoy a sacrificial meal. Wonderful picture of fellowship. In the ancient world as today, when we invite somebody over to our house for a meal, that's a sign of, you know, I want to get to know you better. Uh, I want to do something nice for you. I'm going to pull out all the stops. Well, my wife will pull out all the stops when she's making the meal. And uh, it's going to be good, really good. And then we're going to get to know each other and have a good time sharing our lives with someone else. Wonderful picture of the sacrifice of the peace offering. Next, the purification offering. This was also known as the sin offering. In other words, this is what is going to be offered when a person inadvertently or even uh, inadvert or advert, you know, on purpose, sins against the Lord. <clears throat> Remember, we talked about a particular Hebrew word uh, that's got a funny name. It is shagaga. This is this is the the sin that some people have viewed as completely inadvertent, and there was no there was no sacrifice for sinning on purpose. Well, you know, basically, we don't really sin on purpose, although we do allow ourselves uh, access to temptation, which we should not do, but we do from time to time, like every day. <clears throat> and this, this has to be dealt with, whether it's inadvertent or on purpose. And so that is the, the object of the purification or sin offering. And then, because sin produces guilt, the next one, <coughs> excuse me, the next one is the guilt offerings. Guilt is a terrible thing, and <clears throat> nobody can escape it. I think probably mental institutions all across the world are full of people 
who have attempted to uh, just <clears throat> sort of escape their guilt rather than to deal with it. All right, so we have psychologists, modern psychology, tells people sometimes, well, there's really no such thing as guilt. It's just a function of the way you were raised. You had parents who laid a guilt trip on you, and but really just the way to deal with this is just forget it. All right, so people try to escape the reality of their guilt rather than to deal with it from a biblical standpoint, which is to, to, to go ahead and realize Christ died on the cross that my sin would be forgiven, removed from me as far as the east is from the west. Therefore, I can trust him with the guilt that is the normal consequence of sin. And I don't have to live any longer under the domination of guilt. There are people in this world today who would do nearly anything to escape the reality of their guilt. They need the good news that Christ offers forgiveness and the wiping out of guilt. And that's what we can trust when we encounter guilt in our lives. All right, so that's chapters 1 through 7. That's about as quick a summary as I can, I can give it. All right, next. Holy sacrifice can be only offered only by holy priests. In other words, God has a certain economy whereby not just anybody can offer these sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7. They have to be offered by duly consecrated priests, uh, clothed in duly appointed garments, ordained for that purpose, and very much incumbent upon them was the uh, discharge of their duties faithfully. All right, so it was a big deal. Remember, we talked about the way uh, that Moses was to make these garments that the priests would wear when they were in the tabernacle serving uh, as offering these sacrifices. And there was a lot of uh, technical detail about what they should look like, these garments. They could only be worn uh, in the tabernacle. If the priest were to go out uh, somewhere else, he would have to take them off. He would not want to defile these by wearing them anywhere but uh, in the tabernacle. As well, the holy priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. And so much of verse, uh, chapters 8 through 10, well, 8 and 9 actually, deal with the importance of the priest maintaining his uh, reliance on the sacrifices God had appointed for him to be ritually pure. That's going to show up now in our next section 
And the concept is he needed to be clean rather than unclean. Those are, those are terms related to ritual purity that allowed him to minister and to do his work in the tabernacle. And then in chapter 10, we have an astounding narrative. Does anybody remember? Nadab and Abihu. Here they are, after all the garments are placed upon them, after they go through the ceremony of ordination, and they have sacrifices made to deal with their sin, they go into the temple, or tabernacle, and they offer what the text tells us is literally strange fire. We looked at the word strange, it's the idea of foreign, a way of worship that is foreign. We asked ourselves a question, what, pray tell, is this foreign fire? And we said, well, the fire could, be, could stand by metonymy as worship in the tabernacle, and it was a, a foreign way of doing that worship. A foreign from the standpoint that it was not what God had specified should be done. All right, so commentators have sought to explain what that means. Okay, they, they have said, for instance, that, well, this could have been an incense that was incorrectly compounded. Uh, or it could have been an incense that was used in other false worship systems. Or, and this is the, the view we adopted, or at least that I adopted, I hope I convinced you of it, the uh, most convincing way of looking at it to me is that they attempted to go into the Holy of Holies to offer their incense, and that was not permitted by the Lord. They were not supposed to do that. Only Aaron himself, the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies, and that only on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so they were violating an ancient Near Eastern, a well-established ancient Near Eastern practice that you didn't come into the presence of a monarch unless he what? Invited you to do so. Remember in the book of Esther? Esther's worried that if she goes into the presence of the king uninvited, that's it. That's the last thing she'll ever do. But in that case, the king was gracious to her because he loved her so much and because God was orchestrating everything to protect his people. Uh, and so <clears throat> she successfully came into his, the king's presence without being invited. But here now, Nadab and Abihu do not get that kind of response from the Lord. The Lord kills both of them right on the spot. We look at that and we say, wow, I think God is very, very much demanding that we worship him 
exactly as he has specified. If the Lord had said, no, only the high priest can come into the Holy of Holies, and that only one day a year, he meant it. Later on, of course, right after the event of uh, their incineration, we have an account later on in the chapter where the Lord tells Aaron, look, here's another stipulation I have. Priests cannot drink anything alcoholic, whether it be wine made out of grapes or beer made out of grain, Nobody drinks an alcoholic beverage. Why? Well, you need to have all of your mental facilities in place. And what happens when a person consumes ethanol? Alcohol. What happens? The first thing to go is his cerebral cortex, which basically determines caution. It helps a person think before he does something. What happens if I drive 100 miles an hour down the road and I run into somebody and kill them and then I get prosecuted and I'm sent away uh, to prison for decades? Well, the cerebral cortex. And that's why drunk drivers are so incredibly dangerous. They can't, they can't think, what am I doing? Am I endangering myself or somebody else? And if, in fact, if Nadab and Abihu were intoxicated, then they wouldn't have been cautious in how they approached a holy God in worship. It's a sad chapter, but one that we need to pay very close attention to. By the way, this is all the more acute in modern times because our alcoholic beverages are much more concentrated and therefore powerful in their effect on the human mind than what people drank in the Old Testament. They drank wine that was diluted uh, beer back in those days probably didn't have an alcoholic content of more than a couple of percent. Uh, and so if the priests were uh, basically denied the, the uh, access to alcoholic beverages in those days, I think as believer priests today, we would definitely be much well served by avoiding the much more intoxicating beverages we have today, where wine is 12, 14% alcohol by, by volume. And of course, they had nothing like distilled alcohol, like whiskey or vodka or something like that. That's bizarrely intoxicating. And even beer in our days Uh, fortified and stronger than, I don't know, what is it, 5 to 7% alcohol by volume. Uh, Just inviting disaster for the believer to consume alcohol. 
we, we need to emphasize this a lot these days. I just heard the other day about a couple that had divorced, and both of them had had drinking problems. We always think, well, I'm not going to develop a drinking problem if I start drinking. How do you know that? Nobody I've ever talked to said, you know what? I wanted to become a drunk when I started drinking. I wanted to ruin my job performance. I wanted to destroy my health. I wanted to wreck every relationship I have in life. No, they didn't. That didn't enter their brains to do that. But it happened nonetheless. Very, very dangerous. All right, point three. Holy priests teach discernment. And that's what we started towards the end of the spring last year. Uh, We we hit uh, chapter 11, which is basically how do you maintain a ritually pure standing before God? You had to even be careful of what you ate. There were some things that the Israelite could not eat because God said, you cannot eat a pig. Pig meat was off limits. Too bad for all you hog hunters out there who love feral hog, smoked, uh, or just plain. I mean, it's, it's not got as much fat as a domestic pig. It's better for you, as long as you don't get some dreaded disease from it. But hey, you can cook it. Okay, you know how to cook food. Uh, I don't think that the original uh, food avoidances here that are specified for us in the scripture have to do with hygienic reasons. In other words, you can get disease from... from, uh, Cow meat, if you aren't careful. Cow can transmit salmonella. Hey, wait a minute. We already heard about salmonella today in the message. uh, But we can cook it. We know how to cook it. We can stick a thermometer in the meat, and we're not going to eat it until the internal temperature gets to a certain level for a certain time. And uh, so I doubt it's hygienic reasons that uh, cause us to avoid certain meats. Not only that, but in the New Testament, remember when Peter was going to speak by the Lord's command to Cornelius, the Roman centurion? And what did the Lord say to Peter? He gave him a vision. Sheet lowered down from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals. And the Lord says to Peter, Peter, arise and kill and eat. All right, so Peter's response to that is, Lord, not so. I have never eaten anything unclean, and I don't intend to start now. Oh, that's quite a way to talk to the Lord, isn't it? And the Lord says, look, what I have determined is clean. Let Do not call unclean. The Lord declared all food clean. 
Now, why was the Lord doing that? So that Peter would go to a Gentile and actually engage him in conversation. Ooh, by the first century, Jews had kind of gotten uppity in their view of Gentiles. They referred to Gentiles as dogs, okay? Not some fluffy little, you know, nice dog, but dogs in the first century, as in the ancient Near East, were scavenging animals. They were not highly looked upon in some societies. Pharaoh, we know from tomb paintings in the, in the pyramids, liked to have dogs. Uh, one of them was something that we have today still, the pharaoh hound. Have you ever watched the Westminster Dog Show? I love the Westminster Dog Show. I love looking at all these kind of dogs. The dog genome is so broad. I mean, you can get everything from a chihuahua to a Great Dane. Uh, all sizes, colors, shapes. Some have lots of fur, some not, not so much. But no, dogs in the ancient world were terrible scavenging critters. Probably they spread disease too. And so that's the way Jews looked at Gentiles, Gentile dogs. But no, 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 Peter was to go and proclaim the gospel to a Gentile, a Roman Gentile even. That'd be bad enough to just talk to a Gentile, but a Roman one? God's communicating. The gospel is not just a Jewish gospel. It's a universal gospel to be proclaimed to everyone. That's how gracious God is. All right, so surely these... uh, specified unclean meats were were not just for hygienic reasons. What are the other possibilities? Well, we went through various other possibilities. Uh, You know, one possibility is that they were uh, picturesque of bad habits that the Lord wanted us to avoid. For instance, pigs wallow in mud. And some of the early uh, church fathers said, oh, well, the reason why they couldn't eat pork was because pigs wallowing in mud pictured the defilement of sin. Mud gets all over the pig. That's a picture of, of sin that just defiles the, the person. So, <clears throat> I, you know, it's pretty imaginative, but that's what their view was. So, what did we adopt? Does anybody remember what, what we said the the purpose of these, uh, these stipulations about what was clean and unclean was to accomplish in the life of the believer during Moses' day? Well, it was coming up, there was coming a day when believers were going to be under different leadership from Moses. They were going to follow Joshua. And what were they going to do? They were going to go into a land full of people who were worshipers of Baal. They were Canaanites. They were wicked morally. 
They were wrong in their worship. They were just, they were unclean. And God's people were going to have to be very careful to institute what God's program was for these Canaanite people. Remember, the Lord had told Abraham back around 2000 BC that he was not going to displace the Canaanites because their iniquity was not yet full. But there was coming a time when he was going to deal with the sin of the Canaanites unless they repented. They did not repent, and then in 1400 approximately, we have the the leadership of Joshua. Israel goes into Canaan, and their command is exterminate every single Canaanite. Did the people of God do that? Well, yes and no. Sometimes they were, they were obedient, sometimes not. But then they had to be very careful lest they not give their, their daughters to the Canaanite sons or vice versa, take the sons for their daughters. They were to be separate from the Canaanites have nothing to do with them. So, there we have, uh, I think, the, the most important uh, lesson for us that still today, God has lessons for us. We have to be very discerning on three levels. And we looked at these. We have to be careful in terms of avoiding worldliness. And we defined worldliness as being uh, basically uh, participating in the thought process and the value system of the world system that Satan has crafted. Number two, we have to watch out for false teachers. We have to, be, we have to exercise discernment there. And number three, we have, we're even going to come tragically to the point sometimes where we have to separate from people who call themselves believers. But their works, their lifestyle, their beliefs give lie to that. All right, so here's the three areas of discernment that we have to exercise yet today. All right, so beginning next time, we're going to talk about chapter 12 and what we do after a woman gives birth to a child. Interesting. There's going to be some interesting questions. So if you would please, for next week, read Leviticus chapter 12, if you've got a good commentary, or even a bad commentary. Try to figure out why it is that when a woman gives birth To a male child, she's unclean for a week, but when she gives birth to a daughter, she's unclean for twice as long. Oh, I'm going to be be fascinated to see what kind of answers you come up with there. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word and for your grace to us every single day. Help us, I pray, 
to stand in awe of what you have done in allowing us to dwell in your presence and enjoy your presence within us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, if Dr. Han's voice has returned, then we aren't going to meet about Leviticus. We're going to finish off the Kings. So let's pray. Please pray for Dr. Han's voice. I'll see you then.